Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening, everybody, and uh, welcome to the University of Sydney. Um, I've had a chance to have a quick chat with a number of you. It's uh, great that you uh, are here this evening, and uh, I know that uh, there are people who are medical graduates, there are teachers, there are patients, uh, there are people from the media. Uh, there, It's a very diverse audience, and it's exactly, uh, of course, what we had in mind when we uh, when Bruce Robinson, our former dean, first set up the 21st Century Medicine Lecture Series. Uh, and, and as you can imagine, uh, what we're hoping to achieve in these lecture series is, first of all, an opportunity to engage more broadly with the community, uh, but also to give you some insights uh, into how we think uh, medicine and healthcare uh, um, is developing, how diagnosis is changing and where the new opportunities lie for management. And this evening's speaker, uh, Professor Steve Chadpan, uh, from the Department of Renal Medicine, Kidney Medicine, uh, at uh, Royal Prince Alfred Hospital um, is a very good uh, case in point. Steve is one of our stars. Uh, he's a former medalist from the University of Newcastle. We won't hold that against him. Uh, he's, uh, he did his PhD at Monash University in Melbourne and then subsequently did a postdoc uh, at the University of Cambridge. So he's been pursuing a, a passion uh, in this area uh, for quite some time and particularly in the interface between um, kidney disease, renal medicine uh, and also immunology and, uh, and the mechanisms that, that underlie uh, uh, the diseases of the kidney. Steve is the, um, currently the president of the Transplantation Society of Australia and he's heavily engaged uh, in the, um, um, in the uh, research uh, profession uh, that's linked to uh, the medicine of kidney disease. So Steve, it's a great pleasure to have you here uh, and uh, we're very much looking forward to your lecture. So thank you. Please join me in thanking Steve. For Thanks very much, Arthur. That's a very kind introduction. And I'm what you'd call a clinical academic. Um, that means that I've got a foot in the clinical service. I look after patients most days of the week. Um, we've got a very active kidney unit and a very active transplant program across the road here at RPA. But the other half of the time I spend in the university trying to think about how best to deal with the problems that kidney disease presents to us and our society at the present time. So what I hope to share with you today are some insights into what I think are important, what I think are some examples of how we approach kidney disease and trying to make the problem of kidney disease less impacting on our society and you as individuals, um, and also a little bit about where I think we might go in the future with kidney disease. So the structure of the talk is firstly what's wrong with our kidneys, what should kidneys do, what happens when they don't do it properly, how common a kidney dysfunction and kidney failure in our community, and what's our current management looks like, what does it cost, how successful is it? In the second part of the talk, I'd like to think about improving kidney health through research. And I think an important theme of the, um, of the way we currently practice medicine and particularly typified by the fact that this university facility sits on 
hospital campus ground is that we see research being an integral part of delivering patient care. And that way we get the best results from our research, but we very much get the best results for our patients. And I'd like to show you our model of how we see that interaction working. So I'll tell you about how we approach kidney disease uh, in our unit and the model that we use. Um, I'll talk about defining the problem of kidney disease, how big is it, looking within that big problem and how we can target specific issues and try and find out new treatments in our laboratory setting, how we can then take those laboratory discoveries across into the clinic to try them out on patients. And then once we find things that actually work in our trials, how we can then look back at the impact on the general community. Um, so I'll go through that model of improving kidney health through research, and then I'll just touch on some of the future places we may go in terms of kidney health. So what could, should kidneys do and why are there two? Um, the only good answer I can come up with as to why there are two is so that people like me as kidney transplanters can take one from somebody who has completely normal health and transplant it into somebody who has no kidney function and get a good outcome for both people. That said, about one in 500 people are born with only one kidney. They live a normal life, by and large. So you can get away with one kidney. Now, um, each kidney is a tiny little thing. It would fit in the palm of my hand. Not a big organ, but yes, the kidneys get around 10% of all of the blood that your pumps out. Each kidney gets half a litre per minute. Why so much? Because kidneys are so important in filtering that blood and clearing it of our metabolic waste products. So each kidney gets half a litre of blood flow per minute. It comes in through the artery, goes through the substance of the kidney, and the blood comes out of the renal vein cleaned. Um, on that process, the kidney produces urine, which comes out through the yellow thing there called the ureter and goes out to the bladder. And our kidneys can produce anywhere between half and five litres per day. Our kidneys have great capacity to concentrate urine, to produce a heap of urine if we drink too much, or to produce a tiny amount of urine if we don't drink enough. And it's all due to the structure of the kidney, which is shown here in the little cartoon, where each of our kidneys is made of one million of these things, which we call nephrons. They consist of a little strainer unit, a little bit like a tea strainer, um, that sits, at the, sits in the middle there called the glomerulus. From that comes off a tube which processes the urine and then delivers it in its final processed form out toward the bladder. These little units filter 180 litres per day. We make 180 litres, of which 98% is reabsorbed by that tubular structure. Can you imagine what would happen if you peed 198 litres per day? The truth is you'd probably die in about 20 minutes because of fluid loss. So kidneys are pretty important in that role. The filter, just like a tea strainer, keeps some things in the blood and allows other things through. It keeps the cells and the proteins in the blood and allows the salts, water, waste products through and out into the urine. In doing so, the kidneys remove salt, water, acid, potassium, creatinine and other bits and pieces, other chemicals that you hear about. In doing so, it controls the blood pressure. If you have too much salt and water in your blood, your blood pressure goes up. That's why blood pressure being high is commonly a marker of kidney disease. Um, in addition to that, we control our whole body fluid balance. You'll see some patients develop swelling in their ankles and excess fluid. Um, that can be a marker that the kidney is failing to regulate volume or alternately is losing some proteins which are then failing to suck the fluid back into the blood vessels. 
So we excrete somewhere between half and five litres a day. Kidneys also do other things. They produce hormones, for example, the erythropoietins, which come from the kidney, talk to the bone marrow and tell, how, tell the bone marrow how many red blood cells you should produce. Um, EPOs came to fame through Lance Armstrong and others who inject them to improve their haemoglobin and improve their cycling performance. But people with reduced kidney function don't have enough EPO and therefore they get anemic. Kidneys do other things as well. They produce renin-angiotensin, which controls blood pressure. Um, kidneys activate vitamin D. You get vitamin D from the sunlight, but it needs to be activated by your kidneys to do many of the important things that vitamin D do. So kidneys are not just salt and water. So what happens when they fail? And this is a photograph of a failed kidney. Um, I mentioned that your average kidney can sit, com can sit comfortably in the palm of my hand. This one at four kilograms could not. This is a particular disorder called polycystic kidney disease, which some people in the room are very familiar with. And this particular kidney was four kilograms. So was its pair, but just because they were big doesn't mean that they're any good, they're failed. So what happens when kidneys completely fail? Instead of having those million nephrons, we have very few that function normally. Instead of being able to produce 180 litres of urine filtered per day, that amount is greatly reduced, as is our ability to excrete all the waste products from our daily metabolism. The T-strain, as we mentioned, the glomeruli, when they don't work well, they tend to spill over cells and proteins into the urine. And this can be a marker that someone has kidney disease. A kidney like this will fail to remove the right amounts of salt, water, acid, potassium, and creatinine. Um, we measure that by measuring a thing called creatinine in the blood from which we calculate a percentage of kidney function that we call EGFR. When your kidneys aren't working, your EGFR is low. When you're unable to, to excrete the acid and the potassium, these products build up in your blood and can cause such problems as heart arrhythmias and other major disorders. High blood pressure is very common when you have kidneys that look like this, and sometimes when we don't regulate volume, you get the swelling or the edema I mentioned earlier on. People who have reduced kidney function have a very restricted ability to either concentrate urine or to pee a large amount. And so people with kidney failure need to drink a fairly constant two, liters every, two to three litres every day. In addition to that, when you have hormones like this, you don't produce EPO and you become anemic, you become fatigued, tired, your blood pressure's high, your bones start to become troubled because of the lack of um, activated vitamin D and calcium dysregulation. Furthermore, you lose energy, you lose libido, um, you lose your concentration span as toxins build up and your mind isn't quite as good. And overall, you have a fairly poor quality of life. So this is severe kidney disease. And if we look at the causes of severe kidney disease, or let's say, end-stage kidney disease, where your kidneys are so damaged such that they can't sustain normal life. If we look at what that does that in Australia, we can see that the number one cause is diabetes. So that is the case around the world. And as the prevalence of diabetes around the world grows, this is an emerging big problem for us. Second to that uh, is an immune-mediated disease called glomerulonephritis. Glomerulonephritis occurs when your body's immune system decides to attack, to attack your kidneys for reasons that we often don't understand. And this is the second most common cause of kidney failure. Hypertension comes in at number three, and then a number of congenital disorders, 
autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease, about 10%. Reflux, um, where when you pee, the urine goes back into the kidneys and is associated with scarring of the kidneys over time, is the other key cause. But when you look at the numbers, and we're a country of 23 million, around about 2,500 people per annum only develop end-stage kidney disease that we treat with dialysis or transplantation. So when we think of it more from a bigger population perspective, are these the only people that we're worried about? And the answer is no. What we're interested in is finding people with early-stage kidney disease so that we can manage those people and prevent them progressing to end-stage kidney disease. So how might we look for evidence of kidney disease in people like you in the audience? Three pretty simple things. Number one, check blood pressure. It's often high in people with kidney dysfunction. Number two, do a blood test. We look for creatinine in blood, plumb it into a formula which gives us a percentage of kidney function called an EGFR, and do a dipstick in the urine to see if there's any sign of damage, particularly protein or alternately blood cells that shouldn't be in the urine. These are the three fairly simple markers of chronic kidney disease. And when we use those to classify people in terms of how their kidney works or doesn't work, we get a pretty simple five-stage classification that was now used worldwide. And what it divides people up into are people who've got pretty good kidney function, but some damage as evidenced by some scarring of their kidneys on an X-ray or most commonly by the presence of some protein in their urine. The next level down is where you've lost a reasonable amount of kidney function, you're down to 30 to 60%, and that's called stage three. Not many symptoms there, and I'll show you how common that is shortly. By the time you get down to stage four kidney disease, where you're down to 15 to 30% of function, a lot of people are starting to get some of those symptoms, fatigue, tired, poor concentration. And by the time you get down to stage five, what we call end-stage kidney disease, where the kidney function's less than 15%, we're really just starting to see a lot of symptoms. And these are the people that wind up on dialysis or transplantation. So a question we had um, when I kicked off this game back in 2000 was how many people out there in the Australian community have chronic kidney disease? And to address that question, I was involved in a study called the OzDiab study where we took 11,000 Australians, a fair representation of the entire adult population, now we did those three things. We looked, did a blood pressure check, we did a urine test to look for protein in the urine, and we did a serum creatinine to measure a percentage kidney function. And I'll show you what we found. If I populate the table I showed you a minute or two ago, we found that 2.3% and 3.4% had modest reduction in kidney function, but damage is evidenced by some albumin in the urine we found that 5.5% of Australian adults had moderately reduced GFR in the 30 to 60 range, quite a large number of people. Um, at the sharp end of the wheel, we found 0.3% only had severe reduction, 0.2% had end-stage kidney disease. So you can what that generates is a picture of our community that looks something like this, the so-called iceberg of chronic kidney disease in the community, whereby we have around about 10% of our population with early stage kidney disease, albuminuria, and modestly reduced kidney function. At the high end of the, of the um, iceberg, we've got about 20,000 people in Australia who are receiving treatment for end stage kidney disease because without that, they would 
die. And I'll show you those exact numbers now. We're fortunate in this country in that every person who has dialysis or a transplant to replace their kidney function gets captured onto a register. So we know exactly how many people we have there and are very nicely tallied with this study. We also found out from this study what things are associated with chronic kidney disease. If we were gonna look for chronic kidney disease in the community, where should we look? And it turns out that it's mostly among people with diabetes or hypertension, smokers, and interestingly, those who don't get enough diet or get a, sorry, who have a lousy diet and don't get enough exercise. It was even associated with how long you watch television for. In addition to that, genetics do play a role, being of Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander heritage is a risk factor for kidney disease, as is immunology causing some of the glomerulonephritides that I showed you earlier on. But by and large, the key drivers of chronic kidney disease in our community are diabetes and hypertension. We also know some of the outcomes. If you fit into these groups, we know that you're at increased risk of death um, prematurely and in proportion to the degree of kidney damage you have. The more damage you have, the, more, the greater your risks of premature death. Um, we also know that a proportion of these people wind up on dialysis or transplantation, which I'll talk a little bit about later. But some of the other things we looked at was, gee, does this affect how people feel? Does it affect their quality of life? And what does it cost us? Another thing we looked at was, among the people we surveyed, what do you think contributes to kidney disease? How about I ask the audience, who thinks that alcohol causes kidney disease? Show of hands. It's a pretty common answer here too. Good suggestion. What about poor diet? Half as many takers. Genetics and related. I've already shown you that does, but it's relatively small beer. Inadequate fluids. That's more a bit of a, that's what your mum tells you. Make sure you drink plenty of fluid, otherwise you'll damage your kidneys. There's not a whole lot of evidence for that, except in specific circumstances. Nonetheless, it got a few votes. Being obese or overweight. It's a common marker of risk of having diabetes or high blood pressure, but probably the kidney damage is mostly caused through the diabetes and the high blood pressure. Diabetes, we're an educated audience. We all think that's true. Smoking, I'll bet you don't like smoking either, yep. Um, when we asked the people who participated in the Ausdiab survey, they thought it was all about booze. Alcohol, there's very little evidence. People who are alcoholics and take very poor care of themselves do have a slightly higher risk of kidney disease, but it's not one of the big contributors. You guys all got it right, it's diabetes and hypertension. Interestingly, when we narrowed this question down, and it was asked by Sarah White, who's one of my PhD students here through University of Sydney, when Sarah actually went and spoke to people five years later, with us having told them that, gee, you have diabetes and you're at risk of kidney disease, when she posed the same question five years later, only 25% of people with diabetes acknowledged that as a risk factor for kidney disease. So the public is not terribly well educated about kidney disease, excepting this crowd today, because you guys got it right. We're interested to see whether um, having chronic kidney disease altered the way you feel. And we did that by um, asking these people to fill out a survey that talks about mental quality of life and physical quality of life. What's really nicely evident here is that compared to stage one, 
Stage two is a bit worse, three drops off some more in stage four kidney disease. So increasing stages of kidney damage were each associated with a progressive fall in quality of life. The more kidney damage you've got, the worse your physical capacity is. Interestingly, mental capacity didn't fall off much at all. The other thing we found is that following those same people up over five and 10 years, if you look at quality of life um, to start with, it declines over time. But if you've got mild kidney disease, it declines less than if you've got a little bit more or moderate or severe to start with. So bad kidneys are a pretty good predictor of you having a lousy quality of life. This isn't well understood and we haven't published that yet. What is equally poorly understood is the cost of chronic kidney disease. We all see dialysis and transplantation as being very expensive. But when we actually linked the OzDiab data to hospital expenditures and other expenditures on medicines and other aspects of health, we found that the people with chronic kidney disease cost the Australian community $4 billion per annum as it compared to those on dialysis and transplant, $1 billion. Both are big amounts of money, but this is a seriously expensive problem. So the messages to us were when we look at chronic kidney disease in Australia, number one, it's common, and we think increasingly so. About one in 10 people walking down the street have chronic kidney disease. Most of them do not know it. Secondly, we know that chronic kidney disease is associated with hypertension and diabetes, other common conditions in our community. If we want to go and look for people with chronic kidney disease in a bid to manage that and prevent progression to end-stage disease, as doctors, we should probably look particularly at those groups who have high blood pressure, who have diabetes, or people who are overweight because they're more likely to have those things, or people who have a family history. As I've shown you, detection of chronic kidney disease is probably pretty simple. A blood pressure check, a urine test, and a blood test is all it requires. All of you have access to that through your GP readily and cheaply. What I haven't shown you are that there are some management strategies that are relatively simple, blood pressure control, particular medications, and avoidance of things that are bad for your kidney that are relatively cheap and moderately effective. So we can do something about it if we find kidney disease early. So we've got a problem. Um, people aren't aware of their disease. To look for chronic kidney disease, we probably need to go and screen people. We've got a burden without intervention. The consequences are likely to be high. I've shown you some of the costs in terms of dollars and cents. But the other cost is premature mortality and poor quality of life. So we were faced with the challenge of prevention, early detection, and intervention. And I think we're still faced with that challenge. So I'll tell you a little later on about what we might do about it. But Australia sits within a global landscape. And does our experience in Australia reflect what is happening internationally? If you look at the projections of globally for the prevalence of diabetes, you can see that it's zooming. These are from some Australian researchers working in Melbourne, Paul Zimmett and his team. And they project how much diabetes we're going to see in the world. Given that diabetes is the number one cause of kidney disease in this country, as it is globally, we can see that we're likely to get a whole lot more chronic kidney disease over the next 20 or 30 years. So we better do something about it. But more interestingly, if you read more scientific journals, such as the Sydney Morning Herald's Good Weekend Supplement, only two weekends ago, this came out. And this is another interesting take on chronic kidney disease. These guys are um, relatively poor 
very hard-working guys in El Salvador who are entrenched in a family poverty of cycle working on farms, who work in an increasingly hot landscape doing very physical work in a country that has a poor quality water supply. So for safety, many of these guys drink Coca-Cola or Fanta while they work. And it turns out that there's a real epidemic of kidney failure in this country. It's not caused by diabetes. It's not caused by hypertension. In fact, these people have low blood pressure. What happens is they drink so many sugary drinks and they sweat it out and become so dehydrated during the day that they get a lot of uric acid crystals in their kidneys and premature kidney failure. And the more we look at this in a global context, we find the same pattern in Northeast Thailand. We find the same pattern in areas of Africa. And so I would argue that it's not just diabetes we have to face, but it's many of the challenges that we're facing through poor food, through sugary drinks, and indeed through climate control that are going to cause an increasing burden of chronic kidney disease globally over coming years. So I've shown you something of the burden, the problem we've got. What can we do about it through research? Our philosophy at the University of Sydney is that you really need to look at the size of the problem to see how much of a problem you've got, what does it cost, and then think about how might we target aspects of this to reduce that burden. Those problems are then often addressed by taking it back to the basic science of what's driving this problem. So we can have a look in the laboratory at mechanisms of kidney disease and how we might circumvent these and prevent or correct disease. Once we've discovered new targets and new techniques, we then need to take it back to the clinic, to take it to a defined clinical population, to compare it to our current best treatment, to say, is this next idea going to advance our cause and produce better outcomes than what we already have? Once we've proven that in a clinical trial, then we need to take it to the general population and again look at the general population to see what influence that new strategy has on the burden of disease over time. Now that's kind of big picture stuff, it takes a long time to do. But what I'd like you to do, like to do over the next 10 or 15 minutes is give you some little insights into some of the things we're doing to try and complete this puzzle. So I'll take a, a little further look at the epidemiology at the size of the problem, but this time focusing on that tip of the iceberg that is end-stage kidney failure. Now, in Australia, if you get end-stage kidney failure, we thought that everybody got a transplant or got dialysis. Does that sound right? It's not exactly true. There's a third possible outcome, which is to die from kidney failure. So we figured that maybe for every 10 people we treated, maybe one person would die from end-stage kidney failure. Turns out that through linkage with the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare and checking out death certificates and biochemistry databases, Turns out that for every Australian that we treat for end-stage kidney disease, there's another one or another one and a half who die from end-stage kidney failure. So it's a bigger problem than we thought. Happily, the majority of those people live in nursing homes and probably wouldn't benefit from transplantation or dialysis. They're typically 80 years of age or more and have other problems. But just to understand that that is the other potential outcome of end-stage kidney disease, and if we look at the workers in El Salvador, where dialysis for that entire country is capped at 200 people, it's probably about 10 to 1 die compared to receive renal replacement therapy. 
Anyway, this is the Australian picture. We have about 20-odd thousand people in Australia who remain alive because of kidney replacement therapy with dialysis or transplant. It's about a 50-50 split. About 2,500 people develop end-stage kidney disease each year. The majority of these go straight on to dialysis, except for a lucky few who have a living-related donor and they can go straight to a transplant um, mode of therapy. Of the dialysis pool, a large number, 800 in that year, about 1,200 last year, transitioned from dialysis to transplant by virtue of a kidney from a deceased donor. Now, why do you want to be in the yellow camp rather than the blue camp? And the answers are on the right-hand side of this cartoon, where you can see that of the 2,500 new starts, we lost 1,700 people from our from our uh, renal replacement therapy programs through death. The vast majority of those were on dialysis where 12.9 patients per 100 died during that year, compared to transplant where it's about two. So with transplantation, we greatly improved people's life expectancy. I showed you quality of life in chronic kidney disease previously. The extreme end of chronic kidney disease is dialysis, whereby the quality of life is about 70% of normal. By getting a transplant, that improves, improves up to 0.82. And when I say normal, that's normal young people. So if we take all adults, transplant's about the same as your average Joe walking up down the street. So improve quality of life by doing a transplant. In addition to that, it actually costs less to transplant people. The first year for a kidney transplant costs 60 to $80,000. But every year thereafter costs about $10,000 for medication and medical care. By comparison, dialysis in a hospital costs $86,000 per year. When we did this study in 2005, it's probably about $100,000 per year now. If you're able to do dialysis at home, it's about half that. But year after year, those costs stack up and therefore transplant becomes an increasingly cheaper therapy. So not only is it better, but it's cheaper, so we like transplants. The rest of the world also likes transplants, but they don't get them. This is a, um, an illustrative graphic that Sarah White, again working with me in, in CPC, generated a couple of years ago, where she was able to estimate the number of people at the end of 20, 2011 who were receiving kidney replacement therapy globally. And Sarah found that 2.16 million people were living on dialysis, of whom those inside the blue rectangle were able to make it onto a waiting list. And you guessed it, the orange kidneys represent those people who are lucky enough to get a kidney transplant. So globally, we dialyze many more people than we transplant. Dialysis gets inferior results and costs more. We're probably not doing the right thing by our population here. In Australia, we're a little bit better than average. This is some further analysis that Sarah did looking at to see whether transplantation was purely a factor of the wealth of your country. And on this graph, it shows that the, the rate of transplantation on this axis or along the x-axis, it shows the gross national income per capita or how wealthy your country is. What you can see here is that roughly the poorer countries do a lot less transplantation than the richer countries. But within, um, if you look up and down the line, here you can see Japan very few transplants compared to Australia, 
We have the same income per person, but Australia does many more transplants. Why? Because we have much better um, access to kidneys. So the key answer here is that money does matter a bit, but the main issue is access to kidneys, be they from living donors or from deceased donors. And when you look at Australia in a global context, we're not doing too badly, but we could do a lot better. Now, once people are lucky enough to access a kidney, in this country, by and large, they do pretty well. This is our RPA survival data um, from the uh, 60s and 70s, improved in the 80s, 90s, much better in the noughties. We saw 86% of our patients that we transplanted were alive 10 years later. That's a whole lot better than on dialysis. So we do pretty well after transplantation. But that's the size of the problem. What I'd like to look at is how we can get into that and try and improve it through research. Um, I've shown you that kidney transplantation is better than dialysis. It's better for patients, cheaper than for society. We want to do more of it. But it's limited, number one, by not having enough kidneys available. And probably the best strategy there, we figured, was a governmental approach. The second problem that I haven't shown you much on yet is that the outcomes after transplantation, whilst they're good at sustaining life, do come at a cost, and they are the cost of the side effects of the immunosuppressive tablets that we have to give, which do incur increased risks of cancer and cardiovascular disease. So we've got two problems here, not enough kidneys and the outcomes are imperfect. What can we do about it? Um, this slide shows you where Australia stood from 2000 to 2008 in terms of the number of deceased donors um, per million population. And at that stage, we were donating 10, uh, we had 10 donors per million population, which was about quarter of what was happening in Spain. In 2009, um, the Rudd government recognised this as a problem, having been lobbied by transplanters, by patients, by the public like you to say, hey, we need to do better at transplantation. And the Rudd government pumped a lot of money into organ donation. They allowed the establishment of a federal authority called the Organ Transplantation Authority, um, which coordinated those of us in transplantation, let us get together with the groups that work in the donation sector and figure out how to do best practice together. In addition to that, we were able to hook up with the intensive care units and the donor agencies and the transplanting hospitals and look at how transplantation and donation is actually funded and supported. In addition to that, we have lots of researchers active in how to talk to donors, how to handle organs once we have them available, and how to make the whole process smoother and better. And we're able to link up all of these inputs and get better outcomes for our community, or at least that was the thought. So let's see what happened. In 2009, there was the national reform agenda and the funding push. Um, here we can see the number of um, donors per year and the number of people who received organs from deceased donors. And what you can see is that after 2009, we saw steady progress, but now we're really ripping ahead. Um, this shows you the number, the increased rates of kidney transplantation, my field. We're doing 122% more than we were doing before this process came in. That's fantastic for our recipients. Um, so too for livers, hearts, lungs, and pancreases. So now Australia has jumped from 10 to over 20 donors per million population and we're still improving. So this is an example of how researchers 
and clinicians can get together through government for better outcomes for our community. Um, this reflects the number of kidney recipients last year, 821. I think we'll see 1,000 within a couple of years, which is fantastic. Particularly given that we have 2,500 people starting renal replacement therapy each year, this obviously isn't the full solution. We need more, but we're on the right track. Um, so, we're now getting better at providing our patients with greater access to kidneys, but how do we make them last longer? Well, um, I mentioned that we have a registry that captures how everybody goes after starting dialysis or receiving a kidney transplant in this country. And what that registry shows is that if you follow patients out to about 20 years post-transplant and look at how commonly the transplants fail and what caused it to fail, we get two train tracks straight up the middle of the graph which are the dominant causes of transplant failure. And they occur in almost equal measure. And the blue graph is the patient dying prematurely, chiefly from cancer or cardiovascular disease. And the red line is the kidneys failing from chronic rejection. Our drugs aren't good enough. Um, we've dug into this. And here we can see that over successive era, 80s, 90s, 2000s, current, we've gotten a little bit better at seeing less people die from cardiac disease, particularly early after transplant. But we've got a real problem with the incidence of cancer growing after transplant over successive years. So our kidney transplant immunosuppression drugs are not too bad at preventing rejection, though they're imperfect, but they are bad at disrupting our body's ordinary mechanisms that scour our bodies to look for cells which are turning into cancer and killing those cells. That's what our immune system is supposed to do. Our drugs suppress that activity and therefore allow us to see increased cancer. Now, if you take this back to the laboratory when I first started training, the concept about designing new immunosuppression drugs was all about one kind of cell, and that's called the T cell. We had this concept that we transplant a kidney, that T cells recognise that this kidney doesn't belong to us and causes rejection. So all of the transplant drugs we have are directed to suppressing T cells, but the problem is that T cells also have an important role in protecting us against infection and cancer. So we've got a problem here. We reflected on the whole thing, and when you think about it or when you look at it, this is what a kidney transplantation looks like before the kidney goes into the recipient. Um, that, the kidney isn't the red stuff, that's ice. The kidney is this white, piece of material in the middle of the bucket. And this is where Richard Allen is holding some forceps, holding up the artery, which he's repaired, and a vein. Do you reckon the kidney likes that? That's an ice bucket. It's been in there for many hours, an hour or two if it's a living donor, but up to 20 hours if it's a deceased donor. And what also emerged is that whenever we injure one of our tissues, our tissue releases factors which we can call danger factors, which turn on our immune system. And turns out that sticking a kidney in a bucket for a couple of hours activates these danger signals, or at least that was our hypothesis. So we came up with a hunch that taking this kidney out, sticking it in an ice bucket and rendering it free from blood for a couple of hours causes an innate immune response from innate immune cells which are designed to recognise too hot, too cold, damaged. And that those that activation then is required to fuel and produce the right environment to allow the T cells to react to it and cause rejection. 
So to test that hypothesis, we had to go back to an animal model. And here we have a couple of mouse models where, number one, we can clamp off kidneys in a mouse, make them ischemic like that kidney in the bucket, and then release it and see what happens. And sure enough, we found that some very primitive molecules called toll-like receptors came up. Toll-like receptors are one of these um, very primitive receptors that are designed to recognise it when tissues are in danger. And over the time of our experiments, we saw that dunk, 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 the expression of these things came up. Not only the receptors, but also the things that bind to the receptors. When we looked at the, those that are known in the mouse model, all of them came up over the same time course, suggesting to us, wow, this innate immune uh, cascade is becoming activated in our models. So one thing you can do in mice that you can't do in humans is knock genes out of them. So we were able to get some mice that were deficient in the genes that produced these receptors. And the blue ones had normal genes. They got a high creatinine or a low GFR on day one that slowly recovered over time. Whereas the mice that didn't have these receptors and didn't have their signaling pathways were completely protected from kidney injury. And that was whether you measured creatinine or whether you looked at it under the microscope or did other things. The kidneys were pretty well preserved. So we said, well, if we can prevent that innate immune injury to the kidney from going into the ice bucket, what does it do to the kidney further down the track after we transplant it? Does it prevent the immune response that causes rejection? So to do that, we had a mouse kidney transplant model where we have an incredible microsurgeon who flies up from Melbourne and takes tiny little mouse kidneys and transplants them into other mice. And we remove the other two kidneys from the mouse so that their life depends on that transplant functioning. And to cut this all short, what it showed was that when we were able to knock out those receptors we were interested in, instead of like normal mouse, which rejected and died, um, at least half of them by uh, about four weeks after transplant, we saw that all of our mice survived. So taking this receptor away not only prevented that acute early injury, but also prevented the rejection response. And when we looked at the kidneys, there was no inflammation, no rejection. So we've got a way of causing tolerance. And in fact, if we took those mice 100 days later and then put a second organ onto them from the donor, they didn't reject that organ either. So they'd learned to tolerate their donor without any immunosuppression. This, when we think about it, is the holy grail in human transplantation. If we could take kidneys, put them into people without any immunosuppression, we would not see that excessive cancer, we would not see that excessive cardiovascular disease. However, you can't knock out genes in humans, or if you do so, it comes at a cost. So we got to scratch in our head and thought about how can we, what sort of strategy can we use in humans? Gene knockouts are off the table, but there are some antagonists or drugs around which block those particular receptors that we're interested in. But it turns out that those receptors do other very fundamental things too, like protect us from infection. And some of those trials have shown high risks of infection that are unacceptable. Can we block the molecules that signal those receptors? And there's some work going on there too, which might be a bit more specific and hold some appeal. Um, but there is, some, is there something we can do with diet? Curiously, what happens when we eat food? It's digested by the six kilograms of bacteria that each of us harbour inside our intestine. And the food produces byproducts. And it turns out that all of our immune cells in our body traffic through the lining of our gut 
as they mature. And the food products that are produced by those gut bacteria actually modify the um, development of those immune cells. If you get the right balance, you get nice immune cells which are tolerant. If you get the wrong balance, you get cells which are aggressive and want to reject kidneys or other organs. And it turns out that if you have a high fiber diet, you get more of the good stuff and you get more tolerant immune cells, or at least it seems in mice. So these two guys in my lab, Hui Ling and Tony, check this out in our mouse kidney transplant model, whereby they fed um, our mice um, either a high fiber diet or just injected in some of these metabolites that come from high fiber diets and had a look at what happens when we do kidney transplants. And curiously enough, what we've seen is that, again, the mice on a normal diet reject their kidneys, whereas those who've got the high fiber diet tolerate the kidney. Now, a high fiber diet to me sounds more tolerable to humans than gene knockouts or drugs which knock out their essential receptors. Inevitably, things are simpler in mice than in human, but this is something we're going to have to look at to understand the mechanisms very deeply and look to transfer this back into the clinic. We're not there yet. But it brings us to the next step in the pathway of how to complete this circle. How do we take these new discoveries to the clinic and check them out? So the high fiber diet isn't there yet, but I'll show you some other things that are. Again, I showed you, uh, I mentioned that cancer's increased after kidney transplantation. This shows the cumulative incidence of can all cancer after kidney transplant. And here you can see that in Australia, more than 40% of recipients have got cancer by 15 years after transplant. Much of this is skin cancer, much of it's fixable, but some of it's um, cancer of other organs and some of it costs people their lives. So it's a big problem to us clinically. Now, the history of development of drugs for suppressing immune systems is probably what has enabled us to get such good survival after transplantation. We had hopeless survival in the 70s when we first started. Half of the patients, 20% um, of the kidneys survived the first year. In the current cycle, 99% of people are alive a year after transplant and 97 or 98% of those have a functioning kidney. All of these drugs increase risk of cancer except for these two, at least in mice and in test tubes. So we sought to test whether one of those drugs instead of our usual care would reduce risk of cancer after transplantation. So we took 400 people from around the globe at lots of different centers and we compared our standard therapy with this new therapy. And that cost 10 million euros to do a trial for about two years. Now, you will have noticed those curves that I showed you that cancer develops many years after transplantation, very rare in the first two years of transplantation. So our trial showed no difference in cancer incidence at two years. So we spent 10, 10 million euros, we treated 400 patients and got no results. That's a tough way to do clinical trials and it's the reality of clinical trials in current practice. But within Australia, I mentioned to you, we have a registry that tracks the outcomes for everybody in this country that we transplant. So we got a little bit smarter and we linked this data to track the Australian patients in this trial for the next eight years. And when we go out to eight years, what we can see here is that compared to two years, there was a bit of a hint, but by eight years, we saw a lot more cancer in the conventional arm as compared to the new drug arms. It's not zero, but it's a whole lot less. So this becomes statistically a very positive result. The additional cost of doing this trial, zero. 
um, purely by using some of the resources we had available to us. So now we have a treatment that we think is associated with less cancer. We're now looking to expand this analysis through the Australian Registry again for zero dollars, plus the time of a few students around the place, but that's easier to come by. Um, so that's an example of how we can do smarter clinical trials in the clinic in Australia for less dollars. Now that we've made that sort of finding, our next challenge is to look back at the epidemiology and see what happens over the next 10 years as we start to use these therapies to see whether in the general community, the results we find in trials actually pan out in the real world. So I'm gonna wind up with just four slides. I'm gonna look at and think a little bit about the future of research into kidney disease as I see it. First thing I think we need to do is to focus a little more on what matters to patients rather than to people like me. Ultimately, patients receive the therapies. In the past, people like me have designed trials to look at things that interest us. Um, here, this is some data from a, a great guy, Westmead Martin Howe, that's now published. And what it shows is that how well um, things that matter to patients sort of map out to what matters to us as clinicians. Here we see that to patients, number one is graft survival. Interestingly, their transplant survival maps out to be a stronger importance to them as compared to their own individual survival or development of diabetes or other comorbidities. What also matters a lot is, hey, what does this drug do to my emotional well-being? What does it do to my ability to run, swim, do all the things I like to do? What does it impact on my lifestyle? These are some of the things we've never considered in clinical trials, but we need to do that a lot more. We've been focused on, wow, what are the drug levels? Doesn't really matter a hoot to patients. So I think we need to learn more from this. The second thing we need to do is work with other interesting people. We've tended to hang in our own little silos, work with other clinicians, but this is an example again from Sarah from across the, uh, at the CPC, teamed up with some graphic artists and she was able to express um, the requirement for dialysis in this pattern and how it mapped out compared to the provision of kidney transplantation on a global scheme in far prettier patterns than we had ever done by teaming up with someone from graphic design here at University of Sydney. And this is a way to convey a much better, me better message to a bigger audience. So we need to get smarter with who we collaborate with. We've got a lot of data now. In Australia, there are lots of blockages linking the data, but we need to think smart. We need to interact with government and all of these repositories of big data to understand how we can link all these sets better and get smarter insights into the overall scene. And I showed you one example of how we did that with our clinical trial, but there are much more examples of it. And finally, we have some new technology. When I first came into this game, it was all about xenotransplantation. It was 10 years from the clinic back then. It's still 10 years from the clinic now. I wouldn't throw it out, but xenotransplantation is something that's been more complicated every time we look at it, but it's still a possibility. 3D printing, can you make new kidneys? Um, these researchers, have, this is an attempt to reproduce a tubule. Problem is, I told you there are a million of these in each kidney and they've got a pretty complicated T-strainer on the top with multiple different cell types all in the right critical places. We haven't quite figured out yet how to populate the scaffold you can build with 3D printing with the right kind of cells to do the right kind of things. But maybe one time it'll come through. We mustn't dismiss it though. 
So what I'd like to do is to um, acknowledge our funding sources. We get great funding from the NHMRC of Australia. We get funding from Kidney Health Australia. We use the ANS data registry a lot and a lot of OSDAB data. And we work in University of Sydney and RPA. And I'd like to thank my collaborators um, at the renal unit at RPA. Um, Tracy Ying sitting here in the front, hanging on to my phone, hasn't got any transplant calls, which is good. Um, Trace works at RPA and at CPC. Um, the OSDIAB study was done by some collaborators in Melbourne with myself, Bob Atkins, and Kevin Polkinghorne. Um, and we collaborate also with other departments of University of Sydney, particularly public health. Uh, at that stage, I've talked way too long, but I'm very happy to take on any questions. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Steve. Um, look, a wonderful talk and, uh, and a very comprehensive talk. And uh, we've heard how um, uh, kidney disease is caused in the first place. Uh, and, we've and Steve has highlighted for us uh, the impact of diabetes, high, high blood pressure, smoking. Um, he's uh, outlined uh, for us um, uh, the um, some of the mechanisms uh, by which kidney disease uh, develops, and he's shown us how uh, transplantation um, really does make a big difference uh, to the outcomes uh, for patients' lives. And we've heard uh, how, uh, in the last 10 years, the, the quality of those outcomes has really improved. And then he's also shown us how, uh, by working um, uh, in the laboratory and tackling some of the basic questions, the, the new therapeutic options uh, can be opening up. Um, so, Steve, uh, thank you so much, and we do have some time for questions. I might just ask one, uh, and um, uh, since diabetes is such a big cause of kidney disease, and since I'm an endocrinologist and I have a particular interest in diabetes, I'm curious to know what the evidence is for patients who, say, manage to control their diabetes really well, uh, whether that means that their chances of developing kidney disease are improved. Very, very interesting question, Arthur. Um, we've got excellent trial data in people with type 1 diabetes from 20 years ago that show that if you have better sugar control, you are less likely to develop microvascular complications. One of those is kidney disease. The others are eye disease and disease in the nerves to your feet. That's trial data. So what happens in the real world? Two interesting observations. Number one, across those past sort of 30 years, the best data coming from American we've seen that approximately 30% of people with type 1 or type 2 diabetes get kidney disease. And that percentage hasn't really changed. It's about a third of people. What has changed is the characteristic of the kidney disease. So as um, American data shows, more people are getting better control, more people are taking other drugs which reduce the risk of developing kidney disease in diabetes like ACE inhibitors. Um, and whilst the percentage of people with kidney dysfunction hasn't changed, the pattern's changed a little bit. So people with lots of protein in the urine um, who tend to uh, lose kidney function quite rapidly, the development of that has slowed down a little bit, which is great. And the remainder of people, the growing area, tend to be older people with more slowly progressive kidney disease and not so much protein. So my take would be, yes, that has a positive, added, positive impact, but two, the problem hasn't completely gone away. 
Okay, so more work for us to do. So questions from the audience? Yes. Could we go back to the league table, the international league table you showed? You more or less said we were doing pretty well uh, with the increased number of, gra uh, of grafts, but we're still behind nations we often compare ourselves with and we're often ahead of. I refer to the United Kingdom and the United States. Uh, Spain, I understand, has an opt-out system which puts them up the top, but would you care to tell us why the figures are as they are? Uh, yep, the UK um, and the US had major initiatives somewhat before our government did, in fact. So the US kicked a fair bit of money into kidney transplantation um, prior to us and saw a surge in activity that's now slowed off, and we're sort of catching up a little bit. Um, the US has quite a different system where there are individual organ procurement organisations who are separately funded and have a different fee structure for sourcing donors. And what we find is when we look at the USA as compared to Australia, is in Australia, 93 to 95% of the kidneys that we remove from somebody who's died and donated their organs, we actually use and pop into a patient. In the United States, it's more like about 75%. So although the US has 28.5 donors per million population, in terms of the kidneys that are actually transplanted into people, we're equal to them now. They have a higher propensity to retrieve the organ, look at it and say, oh, I think this one's a bit damaged, I'll let it go. Spain's a little different and their average donor age is quite a bit older, so they accept what we would call more marginal kidneys that are not necessarily going to work for as long or produce the same beneficial outcomes for um, the recipients. The UK and Australia are, are fairly closely aligned. That's, that's not a big difference between Australia there at 20.8 and the UK at 22.5. The UK's also um, you know, got plenty of measures in, including a high usage of what we call DCD donors. That is people whose circulation has stopped and there's a very rapid surgical approach to remove the kidneys. Um, they've pioneered that globally, so they've done superbly. What I would point out is that we've jumped over Canada and New Zealand, which are other very good transplanting nations and good comparators in terms of healthcare systems. Right. So we have a question here and then one here. Oh, and we've got one up the back. So you're next, Sharon. Okay. Uh, yeah, you mentioned at the end there about 3D printing of kidneys. I'm curious about the possibility of growing kidneys, uh, either through stem cells or implants into other animals. Is that a possibility yeah. or a Stems, they are a possibility. Uh, there are two groups in Melbourne very active in this area and probably as good as anywhere in the world. The best efforts have managed to take pluripotential stem cells from a donor, that is cells which are not differentiated and have the capacity to, to uh, develop into different types of cell. And they've been able to generate a lump of tissue that produced a drop or two of urine in a Petri dish. The problem in terms of the organisational capacity of a kidney, the structural, um, relate, the structural sort of side of it, with the intimate relationships between the different cells which go up to, go to make up the, the T-strainer, particularly in the kidney, where um, some cells have got to be against the blood, others produce a, a, a sort of a mesh effect to stop proteins and cells slipping through, and others support the structure of the whole thing and make it um, pulse, if you like. 
getting that all into the right locations in the right times has proven the barrier. So I think that I rate um, xenotransplantation is more likely than 3D printing or stem cells. But I could be proven wrong. Um, I'm interested in the whole, the importance of the dietary side of things that you're talking about. From a patient perspective, um, I've, I had chronic um, kidney failure for, and I managed it for over 10 years from amyloidosis. And diet is so important that I did keep it under control with drugs and diet for quite some time. But collaboration with the dietitians, I think, is absolutely essential from a patient perspective because not only are you now leading towards, hopefully, the fibre-based diet and where that might be able to be taken, but one of the hardest things to control, you know about fluid control and whatever, that's not as difficult, but when you're trying to look at potassium and phosphorus and calcium and vitamin D and the whole thing, um, also, uh, you know, what's, what are you going to do with the dietitians to try and further this whole, oh. this is the fibre is the way to go sort of yep. thing? Because the patients have a lot of trouble with diet. Excellent points. Number one point I would make is the, the data I showed you from the mice studies with high fibre diet modifying immune responses is a long way from bringing it to the clinic. It's probably an oversimplification in mice, but I think it does hold out significant hope, number one. Number two, uh, I think that dietitians in big hospital systems that cost a lot of money are often easily expendable. Do you have more doctors? Do you have more nurses? Do you have more dietitians? Dietitians lose out every time. So number one, they're a scarce resource. Number two, they're very important. Um, number three, I think that they're not a message they can give to you once and walk away. It's got to be an ongoing uh, collaborative project with patients. And uh, I, I'm glad that you've highlighted their importance. What are we going to do about it? We continue to lobby about the importance of dietitians. Um, at a public health level, things like um, taxing soft drinks, sugar taxes, etc. I think are probably the key things that are going to come through to improve how we perform in that space. Sorry, my question is about stem cells and Steve's answered it. Carol, that's the first time you've ever agreed with anything that I've said, so I'm delighted. <laughs> I usually lose the arguments with Carol. Um, yeah, okay. I just wanted to ask in regards to, um, because the population is ageing uh, and the number of medications that everybody is taking tend to be increasing, you have to worry about the um, interactivity between different medications and obviously the more you have, the more problems you have and a lot of these obviously end up having to go through the kidneys and we have situations, let's take something like allopurinol to get down uric acid where if you take too much of it, it can destroy your kidneys even though you're taking it originally to prevent things like kidney scans developing and uric acid levels dropping to cause other problems. Um, so just wondering, is this a problem that's been looked at more and more um, because I don't see the number of medications going down that people are taking. As I said, as the population gets old, it'll probably be more and more. So I think it's a bit of a ticking 
time bomb. Um, obviously, as new medications come along, they might have less side effects. That's a beneficial factor. But uh, just wondering if anybody's really looking at this problem in depth. Uh, I think you raised several excellent points. Number one, we as transplanters are guilty of prescribing too many medications. Our average patient after a kidney transplant comes out on 28 tablets per day. Um, we understand that one of the major risk factors for developing late rejection is non-adherence to our therapies, so we need to get simpler with our therapies too. Um, the second point you raise is the potential for toxicities of medication, particularly in the presence of reduced kidney function because the kidneys excrete a lot of the medications we use. Um, so are we doing anything about that? Yep, there are... Um, there are uh, magazines, publications, educational attempts to get at doctors all the time pointing out the issue of kidney function and its relationship to drug toxicity. Um, uh, the ease with which we can measure kidney function by a blood test to derive an estimate percentage of kidney function means that every doctor who prescribes a medication pretty much can understand how much kidney function their patient's got. Um, which is an improvement on where we were at 10 years ago where we didn't use those equations and the laboratories didn't automatically measure it. Whether that's translated to a reduction in um, drug side effects in people with reduced kidney function, we don't know. We haven't linked up that data to examine that very important question. And the third question you raise is, as we get older, we take more pills, surely this is going to be a growing problem. I think you're right. And we do need strategies to prevent toxicity of medications caused by reduced kidney function. Very good points. Hi. Um, in terms of kidney donation, like how old of a, like, can a kidney be before? You're young enough, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> um, kidneys uh, are unlike um, several other organs in the bodies in that they have a very limited capacity to regenerate. And what we've traditionally thought is that beyond age 30, you lose 1% of kidney function per annum. And that's what the equations that we generate from a serum creatinine are based upon that concept. What it turns out is that not everybody's kidney function decays at the same rate. And in fact, you can take some very healthy 70-year-olds who will still have 90% of the kidney function of your average 20-year-old. So like most things in biology, there's a bell curve where some people have lower kidney function, but some people are pretty well preserved. So bottom line is we'll look at anyone under the age of 80. Um, and uh, I think that our oldest kidney donors, in fact, really nice bloke um, that I still see every year, was 75 and argued, I've got to give a kidney before something bad happens to me to my wife. And sure enough, he did. And three, three months later, he was walking out the hospital and fell over with a stroke. But he's fought back. It's now 10 years later, and I still see him. And he's, he doesn't regret that decision to donate his kidney, not, not for one day. Steve, we used to go to a lot of trouble to cross-match uh, donors and recipients. Is that still important? Yeah. Um, our immunosuppressive capacity is beefed up, so we can get away with poorer cross-matches these days, Arthur. But whenever you map it out, well-matched kidneys with good cross-matches tend to go longer, and because we use less immune suppression, we put our patients at lower risk of long-term cancer and heart disease. So we still like matching. The one thing I would point out is that 10 years ago, if you came to me and wanted to donate a kidney to me, but we had different blood types, we couldn't do it. These days, we can get around that through um, 
uh, and a change in our immunosuppressive strategy which isn't lasting and doesn't cause long-term increases in risk of cancer by removing the antibodies against the blood groups at the time of transplant. And curiously, they don't really come back after transplant. So that's a real advance because we found that one out of every three potential living donor pairs that came to us had incompatible blood groups, so we couldn't do it. These days we can, and we've also got a nationwide paired kidney exchange, whereas if there's some other problem preventing that couple going ahead with the donation, we can put them into a pool with 20 other people in similar position and try and play swapsies with kidneys. We did that today. Well, that's very good news. Thank you very much, Steve. Are, are there any other questions? Yep. And Nathaniel? I thought I'd just ask, um, given you said that there um, earlier that there probably are quite a few people walking around not aware that they uh, potentially um, will contract a kidney disease or they already do, do you think that um, at a certain age people should make a regular effort to, to get themselves checked for those sort of issues? We, we've looked at screening, which is what you're getting at. We've got an asymptomatic disease. We know that it can cause problems in some people. Should we screen the whole population to see whether they have early markers of chronic kidney disease? And when we do that financially, it probably doesn't pay off to screen everybody in society. But one can mount a very good argument that if you look within those risk factor groups that I identified, and through the OzDiab study, if you screened all people with high blood pressure, screened all people with diabetes, screened all smokers, and all people um, with a family history of kidney disease, and probably at an indigenous origin, you'd pick up 90% of people who are likely to develop chronic kidney disease. So we would advocate targeted screening. And that's probably best done through general practitioners. We've got a question up the back. Okay. I'm just waiting for the question about whether the Blues are going to win or the Maroons. <laughs> that I can't answer. Um, my question might be a bit specific. It's about patients with lupus, autoimmune diseases. From my understanding, um, a majority of patients will die because of this kidney diseases. Um, I wonder if you have seen many patients in Sydney and what are the latest treatment or is there any new hope or, you know, what's happening in, in, in your, you know... In fact, at 9pm last night, a young woman of Chinese origin presented here all swollen up with only 5% of her kidney function left and lots of protein in her urine. Now, we've treated her overnight, did a kidney biopsy this morning, proved that it's lupus nephritis this afternoon, and her prognosis is actually excellent. Had she presented to us 40 years ago, you're quite right. The presence of kidney disease was the number one risk factor for prematurely dying in a young woman with lupus. And lupus is an autoimmune disease where your immune system goes haywire and targets various bits of your body, but particularly your kidneys. And 40 years ago, if it did so against your kidneys, they were the group who were most likely to die. In this day and age, in this country, if you're a young woman with lupus, you're far more likely to die of a heart attack at age 60 or 70 or 80 than you are from your kidney disease. And that's because the vast majority of those cases are largely reversible. And so we would expect that this young woman would get almost complete resolution of her kidney disease from the treatment we give over the next six months. So lupus is one of those forms of glomerulonephritis that remain the number two cause of kidney failure in this country. 
but lupus happens to be one where our treatments are actually pretty effective. So that's good news. All right, perhaps we should break to go and find out what's happening between the Blues and the Maroons. Please uh, uh, join me in thanking Steve for such a comprehensive, exciting and forward-looking talk and uh, we'll look forward for the, the next instalment, Steve, in due course. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.